reading from the book of Genesis. After this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time. The king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker were confined in the prison. Each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they looked distraught. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were in custody with him in this master's house, why do, you, why do you look so sad today? We had dreams, they said to him, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, don't in- interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is its interpretation, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that, that they should put me in this dungeon. Then the, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baths. Three baskets of white bread were on my head, and the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is its interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from, from off you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Let me try that one more time. Well, good morning. My name's Paul. I'm the senior pastor here. For all who are visiting, again, welcome. On behalf of our community of faith, we are making our way through the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and we find another perplexing passage yet again today, don't we? Before we dive in, would you bow your heads with me as I share another brief word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, we pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin by asking all of you this question. Have you ever noticed how the harshest environments can produce the most striking results? After a long day at work, sometimes I like to Go home, kick on a fire, grab my bride and some popcorn, and watch a television show called Forged in Fire. 
Has anyone here seen Forged in Fire before? Yeah, some head nods, yeah. It's a show that's out on the History Channel where, quote, world-class bladesmiths recreate historical-edged weapons in a cutthroat competition. And if you win the show, not only do you win $10,000, but you also get the iconic title of Forged in Fire champion. It sounds compelling, right? Well, here is the deal, friends. I am not a blacksmith, and I'm not a bladesmith. We know this, people, right? But I've watched the show, and I've learned some things along the way. For instance, the best blades that are made on the show are made from Damascus, what's known as Damascus steel. Damascus blades are known for their strength, their flexibility, and their sheer beauty, and they're created through a grueling process. First, the bladesmiths take different types of metals and either stack these metals like this together or place them in a canister. And after that, they are welded shut or welded together. Next, the canisters or billets are placed in a blade forge or a raging hot fire where these ovens range from, listen to this, 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit to 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit. The heat is very intense, but that's what it takes for metals to be forged together. From there, the billets or canisters are pulled from the forge and then hammered with a hydraulic press or a power hammer and hand tools. And in other words, they take quite the beating in order to take their shape. Sounds intense, right? Listen, these hydraulic presses, some of them can deliver up to 75,000 tons of force. 75,000 tons of force. That's a lot of force. And if that's not enough, after the hammering is complete with these particular blades, the metal is then cut into smaller pieces, restacked, re-welded, reforged, and rehammered. And sometimes this process happens over and over again to get a perfect blend of the metals. It's a grueling process, as I shared. And it's not just grueling for the bladesmiths, it's grueling for the metal. You see, it takes power and precision and perseverance to create the world's finest blades. And ultimately, here's how the whole bladesmithing process ends. A single piece of metal is shaped, quenched, ground down, sharpened, and then dipped in a type of chloride or acid, acid, excuse me, and the result, a fierce and exquisite piece of weaponry. The goal is for these blades to be able to withstand anything. For those who are new to this blade smithing conversation, here's an example of a Damascus blade. This one was created by none other than Ben Abbott, one of the forged and fire judges. Just look at its beauty and its complexity. And think of all the heat and hammering it took to make it, to shape it. Friends, what if we saw our lives in such a light? What if we 
saw our lives as a mixture of raw materials or raw metals with which God wanted to make something fierce and firm and beautiful. Would you trust him? Would you trust him with your life and with the process and the end result? You see, even for humans like you and me, the harshest environments can sometimes produce the most striking results. And as we turn back to the story of Joseph, today's passage, right, Genesis 40, can be confusing, even disheartening, read all by itself, yet taken in the context of Joseph's story and the whole story of God, it becomes clear that all of the hardship Joseph faces is part of a process, a process of God shaping, dare I say, forging one's man, excuse me, one man's life to produce an extraordinary leader for him. Through Joseph's story, there's much to see and much to learn about what it means to live by faith, not by sight, especially in the shadows. So let's unpack Genesis 40 together. You ready, Dave? Can I get a clap? Thank you, thank you. Now today we're going to do something a little different. Instead of unpacking one expositional point like we usually do, we will dispel three lies that we often buy into in terms of faith. Then to end our time together, I will share an excellent definition of faith that was written by Saint of Old that will guide us as we go. So let's get started. The first lie we're gonna to dispel today is this. You have to be a certain age to be used by God. Zend, are you with me? All right. Our passage begins. After this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief priest, excuse me, chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph, our main man, was confined. And the captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant. And they were in custody for some time. And the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker, who were confined in the prison, each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night, and each had its own meaning. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. And so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him, why do you look so sad? Now, some background information on those who are new with us today or new to our study of the life of Joseph. So who is Joseph? Well, he's the favored son of Jacob and an heir of Father Abraham. Yeah, that Father Abraham. We used to sing about him, right? Some of us as kids. So why is this important? Well, through this line, this Abrahamic line was meant to flow the promises and hope of God to the whole world. We read about this covenant or this commitment by God in Genesis 12, 17, and elsewhere. Thus, this, in an, this is a very significant family we're talking about here. And Joseph is a significant person in this story and in this family. So next we ask, where's Joseph? Well, he's in prison in Egypt. You see, his brothers had turned on him. Remember this a couple weeks ago, some of us? 
turned on him in Genesis 37, betrayed him, and also, like Drew preached about last week, the wife of one of Pharaoh's leaders also betrayed him. She shared with her husband in Genesis 39 that Joseph had tried to sleep with her, or rather rape her, which was very dark and blatantly untrue. Still, it did not matter because Joseph had very little power. So Joseph was once again mistreated and sent this time into prison. Thus, in his younger years, Joseph suffered a lot of pain and suffering. Perhaps you can relate. Still through his early years, Scripture paints an interesting picture around Joseph. For instance, in Genesis 37, we're told Joseph is given dreams by God that one day he will rule over and provide for his family, including his brothers. That's unique, right? Then while in prison in Genesis 39, we repeatedly hear these words, quote, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord showed him success, favor, and kindness. Hmm, that's noteworthy, right? It's quite the paradox. So on one hand, Joseph's early days were filled with darkness, but he did not face the darkness alone. The Lord was with Joseph. And this brings us to our passage today. And the first thing we're meant to see in Joseph's story. Friends, let me ask this question. How old was Joseph when God gave him his dreams in Genesis 37. Anyone know? 17 years old. Thus, we need to take note that you don't have to be a certain age. Trinity, you 17, 18? 18. Take note, we don't have to be a certain age to hear from God. Next, let me ask this question. How old was Joseph when he was released from prison, released from this bondage. Has anyone cheated and read ahead to Genesis 41? Aaron, do you know? This is your story, man. He was 30 years old. This is stated in Genesis 41, verse 46. Thus, Joseph was in his 20s, 28 to be exact, when our passage today took place. You know what's significant about that? God used Joseph. God used Joseph at that age. Yes, God used Joseph as a young man to extend his kindness and his sovereignty to actually redirect the course of history. More on that later. For now, here's the point. You don't have to be a certain age to be called by God, used by God, lead for God, and make an impact for God. Kids, do you hear me this morning? Students, do you hear me this morning? Davis? Adults, myself included, do we understand this this morning? Listen, it's time we stop limiting the power and reach of God to just the grown-ups. God can use even the young guns like Xander and Trinity and Davis to change the world. 
In 2006, I was invited to start a faith-based professional counseling hub in New England called the Center for Hope and Renewal. At the time, I was in my late 20s, and I was just wrapping up a couple of graduate degrees. Answering the call from a handful of leaders in churches, our very young family took the leap of faith and moved from Central Florida to Southern Connecticut, and immediately I was met with opposition. One morning early on, I was invited to a breakfast by a board member to meet a big-time Wall Street executive who'd shown interest in our organization. Not knowing this man personally, I didn't know what to expect, but I had heard he had launched a very large national Christian ministry for men. So over coffee and eggs, I began to share my story and the vision of the center. And about halfway through our breakfast, the conversation turned odd, or dare I say, bad. Out of nowhere, this gentleman stopped me, looked me in my eyes and said, Paul, you're too young and inexperienced for this work. I would never send anyone to you for help. Next, he turned to my board member and said, my advice for you, get out. This is going to be a waste of your time. And I'm not going to lie. His words hurt. And it was awkward. I felt like I'd been just stabbed with a dagger in the heart. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Someone bullying you, being so blunt to you, being dismissive or cold to you? Well, I did. Now, friends, here's where the story gets interesting. Despite the, uh, excuse me, despite the pain I felt, do you know what else I felt? Resolve. Why? Because before taking the job, I had had multiple dreams, and multiple leaders confirmed that I was meant to pursue this work and start this organization. That's noteworthy, right? So what did I do in that moment? I thanked the gentleman for his feedback and then humbly shared that I believed he was wrong. I shared how I believe God had called us and called me to this work, and I was terrified as the 20-some-year-old sharing this, but I did it nonetheless. Then I asked him to pray for us. I asked him to pray for me, and he dismissively said, okay. We paid our check and we left, and I got to work. Fast forward two or three years later, do you remember what happened in 2008 and 9? Wes does. The stock markets crashed. And you, can you guess what organization God had placed near Wall Street with some of the leading faith-based professional counselors there to help people and families pick up the pieces of their shattered lives? The Center for Hope and Renewal. It was led by a young guy who was too young and too experienced, inexperienced, excuse me, to lead the group. But he had one thing going for him, and it was the main thing. God was with him. God was with us. And here's the deal. Not only were we able in those years to serve thousands of people whose lives had fallen apart, people from Bear Stearns, 
Lehman Brothers and elsewhere. Check this out. Even some of the Wall Street man's best friends personally saw me for counseling. Listen, friends, you can be any age and be used by God. You hear me, Brandon? Do you, advocate, do you advocate for that as adults? Here's the deal. One fellowship does. We're all about our kids, our students, and our young professionals. No matter who you are, how old you are, God can call you, equip you, and use you today. All you need to say is, Lord, here I am. Use me. This leads me to our second lie we need to dismiss this morning. You have to be in a good place to make an impact for God. This is not true. Returning to our passage, we read, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? And they said, we had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph Joseph then said to them, well, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Friends, these last couple years have been quite interesting, right? They've been bananas. All of our lives have been disrupted in some way, shape, or form, and that includes even us here in One Fellowship. Especially during the first year of COVID, I've never received so many contrasting emails, text messages, and phone numbers, excuse me, uh, voicemails than I did that first year. Hey, pastor, you are doing an amazing job. Thank you. Pastor, why are you guys so scared? Come on. Pastor, thank you for everything you are doing to serve our church family. Pastor, why are you letting shadow regimes control our church family. Pastor, look at all these people. It's so exciting to be a part of this community of faith. Pastor, where are all the people? Are we losing our community of faith? Pastor, is this the end? The end of all we knew? Pastor, is this be the beginning? Thank you for all you do, right? Seriously, guys, it's been bananas. But let me stop and say this. While I'm sure we might change some things, if we had to do it all over again, I am so proud of the leadership of this church in this community for sticking it out and seeing it through with us. And I mean what I'm about to say. I believe One Fellowship is stronger than ever before. Some of you sense that and believe that. Can I get an amen? Amen. Well, getting back to my COVID reality, Sometimes as a pastor, we even need to tap out and get out. And so I try to regularly take these pocket vacations with my family to get away from the hustle and bustle. And on one of these trips during COVID, the height of COVID, I'll never forget a conversation that came my way. It was in 2021, and we had rented a small place in Cashers, North Carolina. Now, we'd been to Cashers many times, and we'd hiked its trails and seen its waterfalls. But for this particular trip, all I wanted was one thing. Can you guess what it was? One thing, a donut. <laughs> I wanted a donut from Sugar Cloud Bakery. Has anyone been to Sugar Cloud before? Yes, Ellen, yes. I got a witness. 
They are heavenly friends. And here's the truth. As a pastor bumping on the bottom near burnout, I really didn't want to see or engage with anyone else during this particular trip. So we tried to go to the Sugar Cloud Bakery early in our trip, but guess what? It was closed and had no hours on the door, I know. Terrible, right? And man, listen, this is what I thought. Has Rona taken out Sugar Cloud too? This is horrendous. What has happened? I'm just keeping it real. The big man needed a donut. So our vacation went on, and I'm sure I was a little more grumpy than usual. But I decided one morning to give it one more shot. So Blaze and I, my son Blaze, our middle son, is addicted to donuts. So we got up early, and we made our way back to Sugar Cloud, and guess what? It was open. Praise Jesus. And all thanks be to God, I got some fresh, hot coffee and a sugar cloud donut. But that's not all I got. Somehow the owner of Sugar Cloud discovered I was a pastor. I think I was wearing one of our One Fellowship shirts, and she opened up to me. She shared how discouraged she was, how hard it had been for them and for their little bakery. And you know what the Lord laid on my heart that morning? She needed my prayers. So in the middle of the bakery, with all of her staff, I prayed for her. And she was not only encouraged, they were all encouraged. In ministry, we call these kind of moments divine appointments. Was I looking for that appointment? I was not. Was I in a good head or heart space? Going into that moment, I was not. But here's the deal of which this tired pastor needed to be reminded again. Listen, friends, God likes to use the smallest and most mundane moments to create some of life's most meaningful results. Turning back to our passage, do the math with me. How many years was Joseph in slavery and bondage from Genesis 37 to Genesis 41? How many years? 13 years. For 13 years, this man in the youthful prime of his life had no freedom in his life. Can you imagine? Every day you're having to wake up and bend your knee to another. Every day you're having to sleep in a room in a country that is not your own for 13 years. I don't know about you, but in that time, type of environment, in that kind of timeline, my heart would have grown calloused. But what do we see in Joseph? We see that his heart didn't grow callous, it actually became more tender, maybe even empathetic, which is very significant. You see, in Genesis 37, Joseph had shown himself to be a little arrogant, lacking self-awareness by telling his brothers twice, one day I'm going to rule over you. Do you think that blessed them? It did not. But here we see Joseph in perhaps the worst setting of his life, actually caring about others and even sharing his faith. Look at this with me real quick. Joseph asked the chief cupbearer and chief baker, both of whom would have been tasked with keeping Pharaoh safe from poison, but were now disgraced by Pharaoh. He asked this, why are you so sad today? And then he says, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. 
Joseph, listen, Joseph, the man who had every right to leave his faith, or at the very least hide his faith, extended his faith. Do you see it? It's incredible. And here's the point. You do not have to be in a good place to make an impact for God. Somehow, after years and years in slavery in prison, Joseph still believed. He still believed in God and he still believed in the process. And he believed God was still heeding him and hammering and shaping and forging his life to be useful for him. But God, excuse me, but Paul, I've just gone through a divorce. God can use you. But Paul, I'm struggling at work. God can use me. But Paul, I've just gone through this surgery. God can use you. But Paul, I'm stuck. Like, I'm stuck in a really bad situation. God can use you. Paul, I am brand new to this whole thing called faith. God can use you. Friends, we need to stop placing limits on where God can use you and me. Amen? The truth is history is full of God using people that are completely unworthy and seemingly ill-positioned to reach the world and people around the world that even sometimes the church says they're unreachable. Faith is not lived where you're not. It is lived exactly where you are. Listen to that. No matter where you are. Faith is not lived where you are not. It is lived exactly where you are, no matter where you are. This leads to our third lie we need to dismiss and dispel this morning. Lie number three, life all needs to make sense to know you are loved by God. Now, I know we share this passage a lot, but it's so fitting in the context of Joseph's story. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would later write these words, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So what does that mean, Franco's? It means that even in your good times and bad, your successes and your failures, your clear thoughts and your confusing thoughts, God is at work. Right now, in this room, God is at work. In the back rooms and in the lower building, he's at work in the lives of our kids. In all things, God is at work in the life of his family. And somehow... Joseph, the more he suffered, the more he seemed to grow in this respect. The more he seemed to rest under the veil of God's sovereignty and his care. Listen, listen to this statement by Joseph. When all goes well for you, he says to the cupbearer, remember me that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh. Get me out of prison. Are you serious? Joseph does not say, if it goes well with you, cupbearer. He says, listen, with confidence, grounded in faith, when all goes well for you, remember me. The point is Joseph believed. Joseph believed even then that God was working all things together for good and for his purposes. Joseph's well-being was not tied to his surrounding. Joseph well-being was not tied to his own understanding. Joseph's well-being was not tied to his brilliance. No, Joseph's well-being was tied to God. It was tied to God's sovereignty. It was tied to God's love. And it was tied to God's 
timing. And our passage ends in this crazy way. My staff, as we looked at this passage on Tuesday, they're like, oh, that's a hard one, right? What do we read? Does the guy who's blessed by Joseph, whose dream is interpreted and then is restored to Pharaoh, does he remember Joseph? Nope, he does not. Aaron, how many more years is this man stuck in prison? Two years. Here's what we need to see. Joseph kept trusting in the Lord based on what he did know rather than abandoning his faith because of what he didn't know. He just kept trusting and believing and living by faith. And this, as we land the plane, this leads me to this beautiful definition of faith from a saint of old, Oswald Chambers. Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you cannot understand at the time. Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you cannot understand at the time. And you and I, friends, are called to live by faith. No matter our age, no matter our circumstance, no matter our understanding, we can all live and lead by faith. Garth, God is at work. Chris, God is at work. Allie, God is at work. And his greatest work is found ultimately not in Joseph, but in Jesus. That's where his true heart can be found. So what do we do now? Well, like Joseph, we let God forge us. We let him heat us, shape us, quench us, refine us to be the fierce and beautiful tools he wants us to be. Men and women anchored solely to him, no matter what comes our way. Great is the boy or girl, man or woman, who says to God, here I am, use me. Will you say that no matter what you're facing today with me? God, here I am like Joseph. Use me. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. We thank you for this powerful reminder that no matter where we are, even who we are, how old we are, you are at work, working all things together for the good of those who love you, have been called according to your purposes. God, call us back to you. Shape us. Forge us. Use us as you see fit, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.